Okay, so I can actually, for the first time in a long time, I can actually like start off the message time tonight without any snide remarks coming from Ben or Spencer or that peanut gallery. So, yeah, so I can actually like dive in with confidence this time. As Jamie mentioned during the announcement time, the theme for this semester is James and the Giant Peach. Uh, let's get into that. And actually, where this originally came from, kind of the topic that we're going to be exploring, which is spiritual maturity, it comes from, there was this newsletter that I get via email, Ivy Jungle, and it's just got a bunch of little blurbs, and it's got links to various studies and articles and that kind of thing. And sometime back in the late summer, early fall, one of the little blurbs that they had really kind of caught my eye and really got me to kind of thinking and pondering over the meaning of it. And the title of this little blurb was called Unsure What Spiritual Maturity Looks Like. And it was based on a study by the Barna Group and another group called Living on the Edge. And what they found out was that people, churchgoers, and even pastors don't really know what the term spiritual maturity means or kind of what that has wrapped up inside of it. And it's kind of interesting because it's a, it's a term that gets kicked around a lot amongst church-going folks. They talk about wanting to be spiritually mature. They want to talk about becoming mature in their faith. But, but when you press them, when you ask people, what does spiritual maturity mean? What does that look like? They don't have a real clear answer as to what that is. And it says in the study, it says that most church goers and clergy are unsure of what they mean by spiritual maturity, let alone how to pursue it. Among the challenges identified by the report is that most Christians equate spiritual maturity with following the rules. It also says that most churchgoers are unclear about what their church expects from them in terms of spiritual maturity. It says that most Christians offer a one-dimensional view of spiritual maturity, and it's oftenly with a highly personal focus. And it says that most Christians struggle with feeling the relevance of expressing objectives for spirituality. They favor activities over attitudes and what they should do as mature Christians. And it says that pastors are surprisingly vague about the biblical references they use to ground their idea of spiritual maturity. And I read this little blurb here, and I got to thinking about it, and it occurred to me that I, I didn't have an answer to what spiritual maturity is. I didn't have an answer to what that looks like. I didn't have a clear expectations of what that is. And as a result, I kind of thinking, CCF doesn't have a clear definition of what spiritual maturity is. CCF doesn't have clear expectations of what spiritual maturity looks like, what growing in your faith really looks like. It doesn't have a tangible answer to that. It's something we talk about it's something that we haven't defined really well, at least in the time that I've been here. And a lot of that is on me. And part of the reason that we're addressing that this semester. And see, the thing about spiritual maturity is it's a concept that's taken kind of from human development, the concept of maturing, concept of growing. See, maturity is a growth Really, it's really a growth in functionality. See, who are the most immature people in the world? Who are the most immature people in the world? Babies. Babies, yes. Babies are completely immature in every way possible. Physically, they are immature. Emotionally, they are immature. 
cognitively, intellectually, they are immature. See, a, a baby, babies can't do anything but eat, poop, and be cute. That is all they can do when they first born. They have no functionality. They don't have their motor skills don't function correctly. Their eyes don't even function correctly at the beginning. Their ears don't quite function correctly. They don't, they don't function correctly. And as they grow up, as they grow, they start to regain these functions. They start to be able to use their hands. They start to be able to walk. They start to be able to see clearly. They start to be able to hear. They start to be able to understand what they hear. And so as they mature, they're gaining functionality over everything and eventually, intellectually, they start to function. They, they can only un understand things on a concrete level and then later on, they can under start beginning to understand the abstract. So maturing is a growth in functionality and its essence. And see, I was a psychology minor, so I had a lot of human development classes. And one of the things that you learn is actually, I, I printed off a chart off the internet and then I left it in my office, so it's going to refer to it. But there are charts that tell you, like, certain things, when, when you're growing up, certain things are supposed to happen at certain times. You're supposed to be able to walk at a certain time in your life. Or roughly, I mean, give or take a little bit of time, but there's a general range where you should be able to start walking. There's a general range when you should start making eye contact with people. There's a specific time when you should start to walk and one of the things that happen is if, if you don't develop these skills at a certain point in time, that, that's, that's the way that we know that something's wrong. For example, if you don't start making eye contact at the age that you're supposed to, that's a sign that you have, might have autism. And so when things don't happen in certain times of your development, when you don't mature like you're supposed to, that's a sign that something, that something has gone wrong. And the earlier that you address it, the earlier that it gets addressed, the greater the possibility that that can be fixed. When things don't happen when they're not supposed to, that's a sign that something is wrong. And see, spiritual maturity is similar in that growing in certain characteristics of our life are an indication of maturity. But one of the difficult things about defining and facilitating growth in spiritual maturity is you don't have that time chart like you have with your physical growth or your cognitive growth. See, it, there's no chart that tells you that, you know, five months after being a Christian, you need to be rocking out your quiet time, and that two years after you become a Christian, you should have your tongue totally under control, and you never say anything that you're not supposed to say. We don't have a chart like that. We don't have any kind of indication like that. But, but I think there is... I think there is a... We have to kind of look at various aspects of our lives and we have to constantly be evaluating that. Constantly looking at what our weaknesses are and constantly looking for ways that we can grow and that we can improve in those areas. And so as we look at spiritual maturity this semester, as Jamie said, our series is called James and the Giant Peach. And we're calling it that, like you said, because we're going to be looking at two different things. And one of, the, one of the things we're going to be looking at is the fruit of the Spirit. Because Jesus says several times, he uses kind of a tree as an analogy, and a mature tree produces good fruit. When a tree gets to a certain age, and it's functioning like it's supposed to, you can get, tree, you can get fruit off of that tree. If you, can't get, if you go up to an apple tree, and you can't get an apple off of that tree, something is wrong with the apple tree. 
Something is wrong with this field. And so bearing fruit is consistently used throughout the New Testament as kind of an analogy for maturing, is for growing, for being the person that God created you to be. And specifically in Galatians 5, Paul gives a list. And it's not a comprehensive list, but he mentions goodness, kindness, gentleness, patience, self-control, peace, love, faith, and one more. I should have wrote them down. I think he got it. I only gave eight, though. Hmm? Did I get them all? Sweet. All right. I was too hard on myself. And so we're going to be looking at these and kind of a few more throughout the semester and just kind of really examining what these terms mean because, honestly, some of them are kind of vague. Goodness, that's kind of vague. Self-control, a little more defined. Love, we have an idea of that. It just, but some of them are kind of vague, some of them are more clear. And we're going to be looking at all of them kind of in-depth and just really kind of exploring what it means to have these characteristics. What, what these characteristics mean to living a mature life and what these, what these things mean. Kind of how they facilitate our growth and kind of how they are things that we should strive for when we're growing. And the second thing that we're going to be looking at is the book of James. Hence James and the giant peach, peach being a fruit. And there's kind of a tag, giant peach and other fruits. So try to be clever. We're getting close, I think. Um, but we're going to look at the book of James because the book of James is about maturity. In fact, you get kind of into the fourth verse of the book, and it says, it talks about building maturity, becoming mature. And see, the book of James, and normally, as you guys know, when beginning of the semester, when we start a new book, I kind of throw a bunch of background information on you about the book and why it was written and who wrote it and who they were writing it to and all that stuff. And there's not going to be so much of that tonight because we don't really have a lot of background information on James. It's pretty vague. We know that James, there's several Jameses in the New Testament. And so that even kind of makes it a little bit vague about who it might be. So it's probably James, the brother of Jesus, who gets mentioned a couple times in the Gospels and gets mentioned again in Acts chapter 15. And you kind of find out that James has become a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And it says here he wrote it to the 12 tribe the 12 tribes scattered among the nations which is about as vague as you can be because it's not real clear um, the 12 tribes is a reference probably to Israel but we don't know if it's literally Israel as in actual Jewish people or Israel kind of metaphorically for the church in general and so we don't know if he's writing it to Jewish Christians who are scattered everywhere or if it's just Christians who are scattered everywhere but as you read through the book what you find out is that James James sees a problem with certain people in the church because he sees them not he sees them not developing certain characteristics that they should be developing in their faith. He sees a problem kind of like I was talking about you know if you don't start walking at a certain time in your life there's a problem behind that and the same way with James he sees these people and they're not walking in certain areas. They're not being compassionate to the poor and to be a follower of Christ you have to develop compassion he sees people being lazy in their faith and not acting in faith and you should be developing faith 
if you're a follower of Christ. That's something that should be growing in you every day. He sees people who are running their mouths, who are just saying all kinds of bad things. And you should be growing in that area if you're a follower of Christ. And so James sees these people not developing, they're not maturing in several different areas. And he's writing to address that, say that because I don't see you growing in these areas, there's some kind of underlying problem here that needs to be addressed. If you are a follower of Christ, you need to be growing in these particular areas. And so we're going to look at James this semester. Kind of, um, It's going to be scattered out. Um, there's five chapters. So we're going to do a chapter a week, but they're kind of scattered out. So we're going to do... We're going to do a chapter of James and then a couple of fruits of the Spirit that kind of get mentioned in that chapter and then another chapter of James and then kind of... So kind of the James weeks, we're going to kind of fly over kind of rapidly and then kind of hit it with a little more in depth the weeks coming after that. And so tonight, we're going to be looking at James chapter 1. And the thing about James... One thing about doing James like a whole chapter in a week is there's just a lot of information in James. James is not particularly concise, and he just throws a lot of stuff into one chapter and try to break down. And so we're kind of going to kind of be flying over it tonight a little bit. And I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pulling out kind of four points that James makes, kind of tips for growing, tips for becoming mature. And the first one kind of comes in, starting in verse 2 and kind of going to verse 7, and I'm going to read that. And he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all, without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord, He's a double-minded man, a stable in all he does. And so I think kind of the first tip that James gives you in becoming mature is to ask God for wisdom. Particularly when you're facing trials, when you're facing difficult times, ask God for wisdom. Because that's not, it's not, our, first, that's not our first thought when we face various trials. Generally, whenever we face trials, whenever we face difficult situations, our tendency is generally to get down, to get upset, and to ask God to change the circumstance. And it kind of reminds me, a couple, when I was out visiting my eight states over Christmas break, one of the states I was visiting was Connecticut, and so I was flying into Hartford, Connecticut, and about a half an hour before we landed, if you've ever been on an airplane, and there's a child on there who's about five years or younger, you know that at some point on that flight, the child's going to make some kind of scene. It's, it's pretty much a given. Air, airplanes aren't great places for young children. I can understand, because you got to sit still for a couple hours and not much going on. And so they tend to get restless and tend to get upset. And, and sure enough, there was a four-year-old girl who was sitting in the row behind me, but over on the other side of the aisle. And about 40 minutes before we are supposed to land, the girl starts whining. She starts saying, I want to sit by mommy. I want to sit by mommy. Just over and over and over and over again. Because it was, she was had the window seat, and then her dad had the aisle seat, and then her mom was on the other side of the aisle. And, and to her, that this, this was a perfectly reasonable request. 
there was no, in her mind, there was no reason why her mom and dad couldn't just swap seats. But see, the thing about it was, we, we had already, we hit our initial descent, and so the seatbelt seat lights were on, they made the announcement, at this point you need to stay in your seat till we land. But, but she doesn't understand what's going on. She doesn't understand the overarching, she's four years old, she doesn't understand that seatbelt light on, they, that landing the plane is the most complicated part of the flight, that for safety reasons nobody needs to be out of their seat. She doesn't understand that. To her, she has a perfectly reasonable request. But it's perfectly reasonable because she doesn't understand. She doesn't have the capacity to grasp everything that's going on in the situation. Her parents, on the other hand, have the understanding to grasp what's going on and understand why they can't, they can't meet her request. They can't grant her request. And I think that happens sometimes when we face difficult situations. Is we talk, we ask God about it, and to us, because God can do everything, so to us, our request seems perfectly reasonable. So why wouldn't God grant it? But there's things that we don't understand. We don't see the full picture like God sees it. And so that's why James says, ask for wisdom when you face trial. Ask for wisdom. Ask for God not to change your circumstance, but to help you understand what's going on and to understand what he's doing in that situation. So James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials. Consider it pure joy. That seems like the opposite reaction. But what James is not saying is, he doesn't say pretend like everything's okay when you face trials from any time, or pretend like you're happy, or pretend like things are fine. He doesn't say that. He says, consider it joy, because you have an opportunity to see God at work in this situation. And so the first thing you do is ask God for wisdom. I'm not good at prayer. I'm not good at prayer, but the one prayer that I could, because of this passage, one prayer that I constantly, constantly pray is ask God for wisdom. And I encourage you guys to do the same thing. The second thing that James kind of tells us here, as far as being mature, kind of in verses 9 and 10, he says, and actually 11 goes in that too, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wildflower. But the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, and its blossom fails and its beauty is destroyed in the same way the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his own business. And so kind of like one of those lessons you learn when you're a little kid. Somebody, I'm sure, told you at one point in your life, don't get too big for your britches. And it's just kind of, James here, he kind of goes kind of opposite what you think. If you're in a low position, he says, you should be proud. And if you're in a high position, you should be humble. And I think the point he's making here is you need to realize that ultimately your high position or your low position, it's got nothing to do with you. If you're in a high position, it's not because you're all great. And so kind of humility and trust is kind of what he's pointing out here, that you should understand who you are in relation to God more than kind of who you are in relation to your circumstances or who you are in relationship to others. Because our circumstances, our circumstances constantly change. And we see people all the time who 
seem to have everything and then just a couple things go wrong and all of a sudden that they have nothing. And James is kind of calling us something the greater that. See, our circumstances change all the time, but God never changes. God is always the one constant. And so, you know, the second step is just kind of, don't focus so much on your circumstances. Be humble in that, but keep your eyes set on Jesus. The third thing comes from verses 13 through 19. And James says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we may be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And the third thing that James mentions as a step to growing, a step to maturity, is to take responsibility for your actions. He says, when you mess up, when you mess up, take the blame yourself. Don't, don't say God is tempting me. Don't blame it on circumstances. Just own up to it. And I think part of that goes, and you heard this when you're growing up. You know, have you ever, you ever got caught doing something that you weren't supposed to be doing? And if, you, if you're by yourself, you're, just, you're pretty much busted. You've got to take the blame, right? But if you ever got caught doing something wrong with somebody else when you were a kid, and what was your first... What's your first inclination? Well, so-and-so made me do it. It was his fault. I was just kind of there. I mean, it's just that we tend to blame. I mean, the very, the very first sin ever committed, Adam said, I, well, Eve made me do it. I mean, that's just always been our tendency. And James here is saying, no. Own up to yourself. Because, and he even explains kind of how sin happens. He says, we're tempted by our desires. We're dragged away and enticed. And that becomes sin, which becomes death. And I think James's point here is if, if you own up to it, and you really own up to it, and you really examine yourself, and really examine your sin, that'll lead to understanding why you messed up in the first place. And as you understand why you messed up in the first place, that is the big step into overcoming that and a growing and maturing in that area. In the last part of chapter 1, James says, picking up in verse 19, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. And the fourth one, it's just kind of Another kind of one of those life lessons I learned growing up. Um, when I was young, I have a brother who's about two and a half years younger than me. 
And one of the things he liked to do when he was growing, when we were growing up, was he liked to he liked to annoy me to the point where he provoked me. And so a lot of times growing up, me and my brother would get into a fight. Well, since I was two and a half years older, I had a, I had a pretty good record in those fights. I don't, I'm not sure I ever lost actually, but here's the, but here's the thing. Like growing up, it never mattered who started the fight. It never mattered who started it. I was always the one who got in trouble. I was always the one who got in trouble. And I, and I would always say, but he started it. He did this, he did this, he did this. And my parents would always say, yeah, but you're the older one. You ought to know better. You ought to know better. And that's something that comes with maturity. That's something that comes with getting older. Is maturity has a level of responsibility that's attached to it. And James here is saying, you know, as you mature as a Christian, your behavior ought to reflect that. As you dig into Scripture, as you learn what God wants from you, you need to not just learn it, hear it, think about it. You need to apply that in your life. And so tonight, kind of to kind of wrap things up, we're um, 